Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Tim Olson to discuss screening recommendations for fungal endophthalmitis and his role developing these guidelines with the American Academy of Ophthalmology. Dr. Tim Olson is a professor of ophthalmology, a vitreoretinal surgeon, and a clinical scientist here at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Olson's main areas of research interests are regenerative approaches to end-stage macular disease and drug delivery platforms for proliferative vitreoretinopathy. He currently has NIH funding in both of these areas. He also studies the economic impact of blindness from retinopathy of prematurity, ROP, Dr. Olson served as Secretary for Quality Care for the AAO. He has received numerous teaching and research awards, and we are thrilled to sit down and visit with him today. Thank Welcome, you. Welcome, Dr. Olson. Thank you. Thanks for being with us today. We're going to talk about a hot topic, fungal endophthalmitis screening. So traditionally, at least in my mind, we've always been taught that any patient with a fungal bloodstream infection, fungemia, needs a dilated exam to screen for fungal endophthalmitis. So where did this dogma come from? That's a very good question, and it's been dogma even when I was training centuries ago. We fought tooth and nail to try to see if there's some way we can decrease this burden because it's a burden. And working in around in and around ICUs, many frequent trips to the ICU when patients are intubated or not feeling well and do not want their eyes examined or looked at, and there's issues of difficult view because there's lubricant on the eye that's hard to see through. All these things make these challenging events the pupils might not be dilated appropriately, etc. So it's been a burden for ophthalmology for years, but we always felt that if there's a fungus in the eye which can devastate an eye, we need to be able to detect it. The dogma really came out of being overly cautious with not missing fungal endophthalmitis, which occurs in approximately 1% of cases. And one case that we reported at the University of Minnesota, perhaps when you were a resident there, Eric, was a fungal endophthalmitis in an ICU patient where we did a biopsy of the vitreous and detected aspergillosis, and they were going to do a brain biopsy to find out what the cause was of her uh, demise. That case and other cases have been used to say, you really need to look and you really need to screen and you really need to take care of these patients from an ophthalmic standpoint. So you can see why the dogma evolved. Recently, there was a systematic review published looking at this issue about the utility of screening such patients. Tell us about that paper and really was it a turning point on the subject? Question, is this the United paper out of Japan? Correct. Yeah, okay. This is a really important study, and what they found is extremely high rates of positive findings when they screened. I think they look at 15 different ICUs in Japan. It's a retrospective study, and that study, by the way, is being used and cited for the need to continue screening. But if you look at the details of that paper, you'll find something very interesting, and that is none of the cases were culture positive. None had a vitrectomy in any way, and only two cases were shifted to intravitreal therapy, and the benefit of that is still somewhat questionable. So as we were speaking earlier, you look in an ICU patient and the view might be 
partially obstructed by gel that they use on the cornea and you can't see. Is that a cotton wool spot? Is it a fungus ball? You just don't know and perhaps you overdiagnose. And that's the presumption that could have occurred in Japan is they were cautiously overcalling them because the risk of missing it was too high. Do we actually know the number of positive cases? Do we have a number for that? You said maybe 1%. You said the review from Japan didn't have culture positive. So how many positive cases are we actually finding? The true cases are estimated to be more accurately around 1%. Okay. So the next question is, if you screened all patients versus if you screened symptomatic patients, and so that's where the game really starts to turn is, is there any evidence in the literature that screening asymptomatic people, even if they're positive for systemic candida, systemic aspergillosis, is there any evidence that screening those patients decreases their ocular morbidity? Because most of these patients are already being treated, number one. And number two, there's evolved a new family of antifungal agents, several new families actually over the last few decades, that really are game changers, to be honest, because the systemic treatment is probably the way to go, even if there's ocular involvement. Now, there's not massive involvement, which would lead to symptomatic screening. And that's kind of where we're landing now, symptomatic screening. So as you think about trying to avoid excessive screening, what would be the potential harm of excessive screening? All right, this is a really important question because harm, number one, let's just speak purely financial. There's a huge cost burden. Uh, and it's estimated in the United States the cost of what is considered low-value care approaches $67 billion. And this would definitely fall into that category. You have a high-level specialist spending several hours in an ICU, not spending time when they could be treating things like myopia or simple things that really need to be taken care of, that you're spending it in a difficult, challenging situation, to be honest, without a lot of evidence that they're doing much good. So the burden financially is really quite large for low-value care. And that's an important thing, I think, in our healthcare system we really need to address moving into the future. The other risk is if you see that white spot in the retina, are you going to now put a needle into the eye in a patient who might be intubated and maybe thrashing a little bit, risking cataract, risking detached retina, risking endophthalmitis iatrogenically? Are you going to really do that patient a whole lot of good by being more aggressive? And the final question of harm is if you take that ICU patient or compromised patient to the operating room urgently to do a vitrectomy, is there good data that doing a vitrectomy in that situation actually lowers their ocular morbidity? And the answer is we really do not know. So we're spending a lot of money on a little bit of care that we don't know if it's even beneficial. This is right up your alley as with your quality efforts at the AAO is just trying to understand are we getting the results with the maximal quality and minimal cost and minimal risk? And it's, some of these questions are very difficult to tease out. 
I have to give credit to Mark Brizano at uh, Hopkins, who really has spearheaded this whole effort. And when I first read his ophthalmic technology assessment, which is my job at the academies to read these OTAs, we call them, I was skeptical. I said, look, we've tried to do this before, and we've run into roadblocks and, and resistance. But when he really dug into the literature, and he did a beautiful job of analyzing the literature, critically analyzing the literature, he convinced me that he's right, that we, we are potentially doing harm and certainly costing a lot of money in healthcare resources for low value care. Yeah, those are all really, really good points. And I'm curious to know what some of the other medical societies think about this, because obviously AAO has put out their stance on this. You were the senior author on AAO's recommendations for screening and new guidelines. But what do some of the other medical societies, specifically the infectious disease societies, are they on board? Are we all kind of together on this? No, we're not. Uh, And when the IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society of America, issued the statement and the general policies around believing that screening is indicated, it was several decades ago, to be honest, and probably was the right call. We presented this data and critically went back and forth with the IDSA, and they stand firm that all patients should be screened. So we differ, and we differ, and this is a point where we may finally reach a common ground. And so at Mayo Clinic, what we've done with our infectious diseases, we had a very lively discussion over this topic, and we have agreed to screen all symptomatic patients or patients who are intubated in the ICU who cannot respond. In other words, they can't be symptomatic because they are intubated or just non-responsive. And in those cases, we still screen. So you talked about the challenges that even our implementation of care carries risk. And some of these lesions that are identified have uncertain significance in light of the medical management that has continued to improve in terms of the agents used. So currently, if you here at the Mayo Clinic or wherever other facility you're considering making recommendations to, if an exam is done for either of the settings and there is felt to be a lesion present, and it may be vision-threatening or it may not be, but how often does it land on the internist to manage things differently with systemic care versus vitro-retinal involvement? We'll maybe hold that the vitro-retinal discussion for a moment. But how often are we changing their systemic management through those positive exams? I'm old, so I can say this. Decades ago, I think it did make a bigger difference. But now with the newer agents, the azoles, et cetera, most of the therapy, honestly, is systemic therapy. And if they know that they're septicemic from a candidal and positive culture or another site, and if we say, yes, the eye is involved, it really doesn't change it as much anymore as it used to. So again, that contribution mm-hmm. to the medical care team is honestly less important than it used to be, given the more Uh, advanced therapies. And also you have to recognize that most of the choroidal fungal infections are in the 
choroid. The choroid is the most highly vascular tissue in the human body per gram of tissue. And so if you're getting systemic therapy to the choroid, you're probably getting adequate antifungal levels to that nidus. Now, once it bursts into the vitreous and, and becomes a, a fungus ball in the vitreous, and I think that's the latter part of your question, Dr. Bothan, uh, that may be a different story. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm going to jump right on your train. What What is the role for aggressive ophthalmic intervention? And it, is that still a role? And what are we doing there? Even if a fungus ball, let's call it a fungus ball, a white puff cloud is in the choroid and extending into the vitreous, I am currently not aggressive if we already have a known diagnosis. Now, if there's an unknown diagnosis and they're going to do a brain biopsy to tease out the diagnosis, perhaps we need to get out the vitrector. But with this ability of the new azoles and, and other caspafungin, those agents to penetrate the choroid and into the vitreous, I'm more likely just to sit and watch. But as it balloons bigger, if you see progression into the vitreous, despite systemic therapy, at that point, I think we're forced to jump in and do a vitrectomy for the endophthalmitis component. But I, I'd like to see that progression on therapy. Uh, if it regresses, I stay out of it and do no harm. It's amazing how we all continue to improve what we do at all stages of our career and in all niches within ophthalmology. And this is an example of something that day looking back, we thought we were doing the best care we could for these individuals. And even today, where it continues to be rather meaningfully reflective changes on whether whether we should change the paradigm. Sometimes sitting on your hands is the hardest thing to do. Yeah. Earlier you spoke to the potential cost of low-value care in healthcare, and that number you quoted greater than 60% was striking. So as we've been looking at endophthalmitis, just back up and give us your perspective within quality of the AO and just in the house of medicine. What's your thoughts on that yeah, care? Yeah, that's, that brings us into different areas. I think the $67 billion figure of low-value care per year in the United States is an area of low-hanging fruit where, yes, we can provide care through Affordable Care Act and Medicaid supplementation, but if we could start chopping out more low-value care and provide it really where it's needed, I think that's going to be an area. It's an element of quality, too, because mm -hmm. cost-effectiveness is an element of quality. And one of the most cost-effective treatments, as you well know, is treatment of ROP. Mm -hmm. Saves tremendous ocular morbidity and puts people into the economy, etc. Just outside of the ophthalmology world, return visits. It's known that junior faculty members are more likely to see people more frequently. And as you get further in your career, you may not want to see them that regularly. Why? Because you know the natural history. And scheduling follow-up visits on some sort of a cookie cutter may not be the best idea. And avoiding unnecessary office visits may allow for more urgent care visits. And, and things like that, I think, are where the lower-hanging fruit is. Be exciting to see where big data takes us to help yes, dig into exactly. some of these questions. Great point. Great point. Your generation is going to have a lot more fun with this than we ever could because you're going to have tools that we didn't have. I'm jealous. <laughs> well, there's a lot of opportunity for work, but it's definitely <laughs> going to be hard work. Right. But big impact. More focused hard work. I like it. Yeah. Well, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for taking us through that. This is a great example of how healthcare can improve 
for patients, for providers, and how maybe taking a look at what we think is the right thing to do and reevaluating it, even when it doesn't seem like it makes sense, can really kind of disclose new things. This is a, a great example of that. So thanks so much for chatting with us. Thank you. Thank you. You can find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website. Thank you for listening, and we definitely look forward to sharing more 